Tuesday, June 27th, and we're back with a new Fenway Rundown, Mass Lives Red Sox podcast. Red Sox coming off a shockingly middling trip to Minnesota and Chicago, splitting with the Twins 2-2, two and two, and then disappointing, dropping two out of three to the White Sox at guaranteed rate field over the weekend. The bats were not uh, really alive. We've seen the streaky offense continue, and they come home for a very quick homestand Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday against the Marlins before hitting the road for a very quick road trip in Toronto. They then come home on the 4th of July again. But this is a middling group, 40 and 39. A lot of big-picture questions facing this team as we head into the next month, the trade deadline on August 1st. We're going to answer a lot of your questions today. First mailbag episode in a while. Uh, Sean McAdam will be alongside here in a minute. I'm your host, Chris Cotillo, and this is the Fenway Rundown. Chris Cotillo along with Sean McAdam on the Fenway Rundown here on a Tuesday. Red Sox about to begin a three-game series with the Miami Marlins, and uh, we're going to do a mailbag episode because we haven't done one of these in a while. But first, we're going to talk to Sean, who wrote uh, a column this morning, a big-picture look at the Red Sox here on June 27th. The column is entitled... Red Sox could use help now with the calendar and the math are working against them. Sean, um, you, you start with time is now the enemy of the Red Sox. You want to kind of explain your point and where you think the Red Sox stand at this very point in time? Yeah, I, I mean, not unlike where they did a year ago, Chris, in a number of different ways. Uh, you'll remember that injuries had hit this team last June. They started to have injuries to the rotation, to Valdi, to Waka. Uh, all of a sudden they were piecing together a rotation. It seems like we're seeing that again now. Uh, and the, the calendar reference was sort of twofold. It was replicating what happened a year ago and also the fact that while they could use immediate help, it's very difficult to try to get a deal done in early July. A lot of teams are still focused on the draft, which comes up at the all-star break. Uh, they're not ready to wave the white flag if they're going to be sellers. So even though the time is now, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, using your closer in the seventh inning, mm -hmm. because this is the critical part of the season for the Red Sox to withstand uh, what the injuries have done to them. And yet it's a very hard time uh, to make a deal because there's still a month to go before the deadline. And then there's also the matter of, is this team, and this is also a question we asked last year, is this team worth investing in? Uh, if you're a game over 500, if you've essentially been a 500 team for all three months of the first half of the season, uh, if Fangraphs has you at less than 18% to make the playoffs, uh, do you really want to give up prospects or pieces off the major league roster to improve when there's no evidence to suggest that that's going to make the difference in the long run. So those are all questions facing Heim Bloom and the rest of the baseball ops uh, department right now, because, um, you know, they clearly need help and they clearly have some weaknesses, but it's a tough time to try to address those. And then there's the matter of uh, toward what end are you going to make those deals given the long shot the team faces to make the postseason. Yeah, and obviously the clock is ticking because the trade deadline of August 1st is, is fast approaching, as everybody knows. And as I tweeted yesterday in, in a thread and not a column form, which uh, we don't get paid by Twitter, so that was probably a mistake, but um, they're in a precarious spot because, you know, they need to make moves now, agreed on that front. Um, by the time they get to the trade deadline, will Bloom still be part of it? I think so, but that's one of the questions we're going to get to 
um, as part of the mailbag. And, and at that point, will he change his MO because he's in job-saving mode? I think that's another fascinating piece of this. We talked about with Ken Rosenthal a couple weeks ago, the Red Sox have fired, you know, now two in a row, right? Charrington and Dombrowski in season after having them go through the trade deadline. Seems like a, a strange thing to do. And, and if that happens again, then, you know, do you give Bloom one more deadline? And how does he operate? Does he stick to his um, how he usually operates? Or is he different because he's trying to save his job? So let's turn it over to to some questions here. Obviously, there's some big picture stuff, some macro stuff, and then obviously, um, you know, some small things uh, as we get closer to the deadline. Um, we'll start with Jason Stalakis, uh, who I know well. Do you think this is the last season we see Bloom and Cora working together? Well, there's certain that certainly that possibility if if the team does not improve over the second half and ends up either in the basement of the American League East or no better than fourth place, uh, that will be at that point uh, 21 to four full seasons of Heim Bloom with only one postseason to show for his work. Mm -hmm. And worse, it isn't like this team's in second place chasing a runaway team in first and is going to finish with you know, 87 or 89 wins where there's a discernible upgrade from a year ago, they're trending toward essentially the same year that they had last year. I know people, uh, you know, harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. Uh, They won, what, 78 games last year. Uh, They're on pace to win about 82 or 83. I don't think that's the Mm -hmm. step forward uh, that Heim Bloom needs to show ownership and say, look, we're, we're making progress. We, we finished with a winning record. We're clearly headed in the right direction. Uh, as we sit here on June 27th, it's hard to say that. And then there's, you know, whatever friction may exist between the two, where often a manager is trying to win that night. He's trying to contend that year while the front office executive is looking more big picture down the road. What's this mean in two, three, four years? So they're going to be at cross purposes at times. But I, I think there's, you know, some evidence that that relationship has um, has frayed somewhat as they each seek different goals. So there's a lot on the table here and a lot to be decided. And we've said this before and, and definitely um, in casual conversation and probably on the pod, I think. And I think that if Alex Cora leaves the organization, it'll be his choice. You know, I've always been of the mind that. I don't think he's uh, unfireable. We've seen them do it before, obviously, under much different circumstances. But I think that he's at a place where if he wants to, if he wants out or if there's going to be a change there, it's going to be his decision. Um, and if it comes down to a power struggle between Bloom and Cora, I personally give the edge to Cora. I think that he has Sam Kennedy and ownership more on his side. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, I I would say that's generally true, but I think there's also a lot on the line here for Sam Kennedy, too, because he was the guy entrusted with finding the replacement for Dave Dombrowski. Remember, they did that in early September to give them a little bit of a head start on the market, knowing that there were going to be other firings, other changes uh, among front office executives throughout the game. Uh, Sam essentially conducted that job search by himself. He was the one who recommended Heim Bloom to ownership. And so he has something invested here. Um, But I think your larger point is correct that ownership has shown a real affection for Alex Cora. They could have walked away from him after his suspension 
uh, dating back to the 2017 season for his involvement in the Astros sign stealing. Instead, they advocated for bringing him back. Uh, that, to me, indicates that forced to choose, I agree. I think they would side with Cora. Brendan Cross and Andrew Meehan ask basically the same question. We'll use Brendan's wording. It's effectively the same thing. Is there a certain amount of games the Red Sox need to be out of a playoff spot for the front office to go all in on selling at the deadline? Or are they going to wait until the deadline itself, regardless of record, to decide whether to buy or sell? I'll start by answering and saying we've seen uh, pretty much in every instance with this front office, whether it be a small deadline like the Rule 5 protection deadline, trade deadlines in previous years, they like to wait until the last possible second to, to really um, – you know, make a decision either way. If you think back to their biggest trade deadline moves the last few years, Kyle Schwarber was the night before. I think Robles and some of those were right at the deadline. Last year, Vasquez and McGuire and Pham the night before and Hosmer on deadline day. So this is not a group, I think, that's going to go out and kind of side their path on July 20th, July 25th. I would guess that they're going to really take stock of where they are July 31st, heading into that August 1st deadline. I don't know if there's a set number, um, I just think they have to look at where they are, how they're playing, and you know uh, if they still have belief in themselves. Last year they did. I think it was a parallel strategy as we've talked about. Do you think there's a set number, or it's more, um, you know, they're going to look up at the as always. Alex Gore always says, look up on, on July 30th, July 31st, and decide what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I think it's much more of a feel thing than it is a math thing. Uh, I don't think they are sitting there saying, okay, if we're within three, we buy. If we're more than three out, we sell. I don't think it's that simple. Indeed, it was not that simple last year when they tried to do a little bit of both in uh, in moving Vasquez and moving on from Diekman while also applying some uh, acquiring some short-term help like uh, McGuire, like Pham. Uh, and some of the moves that they made. Uh, so I, I don't think it's clear cut one way or the other. I, I think we could see, um, I know fans probably don't want to hear this, but I, I could very easily envision a similar strategy to a year ago where they're not quite ready to cash out on 2023 and might try to acquire a piece or two that could help them if things mm -hmm. go right over the final two months. But if they see opportunities uh, to help them out for the future. And I guess maybe you would put McGuire in that category last year because he had additional control. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, a short-term rental. So I, I think we could see another little bit from column A and a little bit from column B all over again. Next question comes from uh, Jason C. Are the 2023 Red Sox meeting ownership's expectations is ownership content just to see the system improve as evidence of progress? I would think not. Uh, you know, the, the, there has to be some patience and big picture uh, standards applied here. And clearly ownership wants to see that sustainability is part of one of the goals. And that's done by improving the system, which by all accounts, Bloom has done. Uh, we'll leave it up to others to, to judge to what degree he's been successful at that. It's probably premature to judge overall. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there's, uh, I, look, ownership cannot be happy that the team 
is in fifth place, which is last place in the American League East. And I don't want to hear about if they were in the American League Central, they'd be, you know, uh, ahead of the Twins, or if they were in the National League, they're not. Then the American League East, we don't deal in hypotheticals and fantasy land. We deal in reality. This team is in danger of finishing last for the second straight year. It's in danger of missing out on the postseason for the last, for the third time in the last four years. And I don't see any way that ownership could or should be satisfied with that. And that would be five out of six, right? Nineteen twenty. 22 23 yeah four out of five um and so i mean obviously uh not not the standard they want i I think think three out of four on bloom's watch yeah and i think like there's kind of this and i don't know if if uh jason was kind of implying this in the question but i do think that there is this idea that ownership has checked out because of the other properties we saw them you know get involved with that golf league with rory mcelroy and tiger woods yesterday which as a golf fan, it's the dumbest thing ever. They're just hitting into a simulator in an arena. I mean, I'll find a way to bet on it, sure, but I'm not thrilled about it. Um, these are uh, multi-billionaires who have a lot of people working under them. I don't think that the golf league is going to take their attention away from the Red Sox, but as I've said time and time again, in, again in casual conversation and on the pod, if the Red Sox want people to start think they the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. Maybe they should answer some questions and maybe they should put themselves out there. Something we haven't seen in more than three years. Sam Gilman asks, are, is there any sense they will trade to improve at shortstop or second base? It's been a huge weakness all season and a huge failure for Bloom. On this one, I will obviously fault them for thinking Kike Hernandez was a capable shortstop. We've seen that that is not the case. Um, but, you know, they have been to their credit, insulated, and I, I know they made one trade, a very minor one that's worked out in Pablo Reyes. Um, the guys they've cycled through have actually been better than you would have anticipated. Yu Chang in April, Pablo Reyes for a stretch. You know, David Hamilton adds a dimension. So I know they're on like plan E or F at shortstop. It's not Bogart's, Bogart's or Story, but they've been kind of able to hold their own. The answer to that question, will they trade to improve at shortstop or second, I would guess obviously not because Trevor Story is coming back and they look at that as a major you know, mid-season trade piece almost that you have to give up nothing to get. At second base, I feel like you know once Trevor Story is at shortstop every day, they're going to feel comfortable with the other options they have at second, whether that be Arroyo, Emmanuel Valdez at AAA is a guy who can play there, Pablo Reyes, um, you know, or, they have a, or Kike, right, and the guys who can cycle through. So my guess are, are in pretty strong senses. Yeah, though it looks ugly right now, um, that's not going to be a major area of need come the trade deadline. Yeah, I, I think if they were going to do that, they would have already done it. And who knows, maybe mm-hmm. they... Well, they did have the Pablo Reyes blockbuster. Right. Uh, and that's the kind of guy you're probably going to go out and get, um, you know, a, a 4A up and down guy who can play... Uh, some defense in the middle of the infield and help stabilize that position uh, that was not at all stable when Hernandez was committing 14 errors, the most mm-hmm. in the American League. Uh, but it seems like, uh, I agree with you, as they get closer to uh, Trevor Story coming back and being able to contribute at short, which the expectation is that that'll happen sometime in early August, it's hard to think of them giving up a lot of capital for a couple of weeks of stopgap play. But on the other hand, they could certainly use, given that we don't expect uh, Adalberto Mondesi to be back at any point, 
Yu Chang's uh, Hamate thing has gone on far longer than they expected. He was supposed mm -hmm. to be back weeks ago. There's no sign he's made real progress. Um, you know, Reyes is who he is. Uh, I think they feel like between Hamilton and Reyes, they can get through the next month. That may be um, whistling past the graveyard, but it appears to be their thinking at this point. Dave McCarthy asks, Wink, Winkowski is having a nice year. Do the Red Sox see him as a bullpen piece or a future starter perhaps next season? I, I would think that he's one of those guys who showed his best self to be as a reliever. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no comparison between his performance last year as a back-end starter and this year as a high-leverage bullpen piece. Uh, the stuff is played up. The velocity is better. And I, I, I agree that, um, you know, he made some uh, uh, adjustments in the offseason to make himself better. But it just seems like he's better suited uh, for that seventh and eighth inning role. And um, it isn't necessarily true that everybody who shines in that capacity is going to be as effective when you're asking him to throw 90 to 100 pitches every five days. So I, I think, uh, you know, a little bit by accident, they have stumbled upon a guy that can be a low cost, under control effective reliever and you need those guys as setup people to get you to your closer they have john schreiber who's been out but will come back at some point uh and chris martin and nick pavetta there's four pretty good weapons um that can shut down the game when they have the lead in the sixth inning and beyond i wouldn't expect winkowski's going anywhere anytime soon and josh winkowski as people remember acquired in the andrew benatendi trade with the Royals, uh, Andrew Benatendi was kind of uh, at the forefront of our minds over the weekend, had a good series against the Red Sox, yet remains, if you look at every metric, every stat, the most average player in baseball. And if the Red Sox can get, you know, a few good years out of Winkowski, even in a bullpen role in that trade, I think it's not as bad as people once thought, you know, obviously. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of attention on uh, on um, Franchi Cordero as being the headliner in that deal. And when he flamed out, people were ready to roast the Red Sox. But I agree with you. I, I failed to see what the ongoing fixation with Andrew Benatendi is. He's uh, essentially lost all his power. He's got one homer through half the season. He's got a slugging percentage uh, in the high 300s. Uh, he's an adequate corner outfielder. He does get on base fairly well at the top of the lineup. But to treat Andrew Benatendi as if he's morphed into some sort of all-star is, is kind of ridiculous. Right. And I, in my mind and in the mind of many around the game, not worth that five-year, $75 million contract he got from Chicago. High on life 12. <clears throat> is this your burner or no? <laughs> it is not. As far as the outfield is concerned, what is the likelihood that we will see either Duran or Verdugo being used in a package deal at the deadline, especially considering how left-handed heavy the outfield bats are and the latter having a year of arbitration left? Verdugo, a free agent after 24, Duran obviously farther down the road. As you wrote the other day, if there's an outfielder traded, uh, you don't think it would be one of those two? No, I think it would be Adam Duvall, who's on a one-year deal here, who um, uh, could have some appeal, you know, under this scenario where you have teams trading, you know, sort of old-fashioned baseball trades, major league piece for major league piece, because there are going to be so many more buyers than sellers. It's going to be hard uh, for teams to give up prospects for rentals. So we may see a return to two contenders dealing with each other and 
one dealing from uh, an area of surplus to try to um, address an area, an area of need, uh, you could make the case that because the Red Sox survived without Duvall for much of the first two and a half months of the season, that he could be expendable. He's a good player. He's probably their best right-handed power bat when he's healthy. And he's certainly at least an average, if not better outfielder. Uh, but they have much more invested um, in the long run in uh, Jaron Duran and even Alex Verdugo, who maybe they might try to extend this uh, this this off season with his walk year coming up. Um, I, I think I don't envision any scenario in which either Verdugo or Duran get moved. And on Duval, obviously, has not been great since he came back from the injured list. But um, a guy, I think his his resume, his track record. People know what you get in that player. It's a guy who's, you know, even as a platoon guy on another team, on a contender, would have a lot of value. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's who's won a gold glove and has had three 30 home run seasons. Mm -hmm. Those guys don't grow on trees, and I would expect that there would be some value there. Um, they're not unhappy with him. I think it was probably logical to assume he was going to struggle a little bit to find his timing after missing uh, – almost exactly two months. And indeed that is what happened, what has happened. Uh, but he could still get hot the way he did coming out of the gate back in April when he was easily their best offensive player for the first two weeks. Um, but if you're looking to move somebody off the major league roster that you don't have a long-term investment with um, that could bring you something in return, it seems to me that Duval lines up as that guy. From Yankees suck at not my name one three two, very interesting handle. I'd love to hear the Steelman case for keeping Bloom. Lots of people, including myself, want him gone. But what are the best arguments for keeping him? Am I missing something? I always go back to the same thing. Let's call twenty twenty a wash. Okay, I think that's fair to do. And now that this means it's our the third full season of Heim Bloom. Is that enough time, less than four calendar years, to execute a long term plan? I'm asking the question. And yeah, I don't know the I answer mean, it, to it. it. It's probably not. And yet it may not matter uh, because it, it's about perception. It's about um, appeasing the public. And clearly, Bloom is not a popular guy with this fan base. Uh, if I were to play devil's advocate, I would say that Heim Bloom actually uh, had a pretty decent offseason. When you're talking about uh, signing Yoshida to a risky five-year, $90 million mm -hmm. deal, he was an unknown. We're only three months into a five-month deal, but he certainly looks like he's as advertised, which is to say a well-above offensive player uh, who's going to give you value um, uh, offensively, defensively. He's an adventure. We know that, but we kind of knew it coming in. But he gets on base. Uh, he uses the whole field, uh, and he can uh, slug a little bit. So that was a good move. Um, you could look at some others and say that signing Duval was a, a, a solid move. Uh, you could say that signing Kenley Jansen has worked out well for them and solidified the back end of the bullpen. And then the other thing is to say that, and I think this much is inarguable, that the farm system is better now than it was when Heimblum got here. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the fact that uh, three guys uh, who were drafted on his watch, um, that is Meyer, um, 
Drowen and uh, Nick York are all going to take part in the Futures game in Seattle next month. And that's an indication that in the upper levels of the system, there are starting to appear uh, real prospects. And that wasn't true before he was here. Right. We'll, we'll go with three more. Um, Party of Marty 3. When will we get a starter via trade to put a stop to the opener nonsense? Look, the people uh, running the Red Sox want that now. They wish they could do it today. It just comes down to the fact that there's not much out there, and it's going to cost you a ton, right? I mean, it's June 27th. This is not a good time if you need somebody. And they've just seen their depth ripped apart. I mean, we all know that Hauk and Sale are on the injured list, but um, behind the big four right now of Bayo, Paxton, Whitlock, and Crawford, Brian Mata is on the injured list. Chris Murphy's now a reliever. Drowen, who you just mentioned, is not ready. He even got slightly hurt in his last start. Pavetta's a reliever. Kluber's hurt. I mean, they're really running on fumes here. Another injury, I think, would, would really uh, be catastrophic. I mean, they're already at a catastrophic place where they're going to yep. be using a bullpen game every five days. But it's just and, timing, and it, I think, when it comes to the trade stuff. Right. And, and in addition to having to rely on a bullpen game or an opener every five days, you have Cutter Crawford, who, while talented and we think uh, has actually a decent future, he's not exactly um, a, a sure thing as a major league starter right. at this point in his career. And then further, the Paxton knee issue. Um, it, it's one thing for the Red Sox to say, oh, no big deal. He's going to make his schedule start on Friday. Um, but there's the very troubling uh, development that this guy got taken out after 63 pitches in four innings. Uh, usually if it's no big deal, a guy pitches through that. The fact that they saw fit to cut his last start short when he was otherwise pitching well is an indication that this is not something uh, that that is necessarily no big deal. I, I think we have to monitor um, his readiness for his next start on Friday and wonder what kind of impact that's going to have going forward. Definitely. And, you know, that's obviously something that will probably be addressed today at the ballpark. And uh, two more, Stan Jaskill, SJ Tunes. Why is there the assumption that if they're not in contention by the deadline, they must trade Paxton? Why not hold on to him and try to re-sign him? He seems thrilled with the front office and rehab and medical crew. Why is re-signing him not brought up as an option? I'll answer that as someone who wrote a lot of words about it, potentially uh, extending him last week. I think it is on the table. I just think that if he is pitching and he's healthy, as Ken Rosenthal told us on here a couple weeks ago, if he's pitching well and he's healthy, you can maybe get a top 100 prospect for him. I feel like you just have to make that deal, considering the uncertainty, his age, all that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, there is the chance that they look to sign him and have him be a veteran anchor in a young rotation that should include Bayo, Crawford, Hauk, Whitlock, some of these guys moving forward. Yeah, and um, I, I think the, the there's also the issue of dependability. And while Paxton has pitched, I think, better than anyone, and I would put Heimblum and Alex Cora and everyone at Fenway Park James in that Paxton. category, and, and maybe James Paxton too, I don't think anybody expected him to be this good after – you know, throwing 22 innings or whatever it was over the last three and a half seasons and good for him for the work he put in and the stick to he showed coming back from, uh, from, uh, Tommy John and then a couple of smaller setbacks like the hamstring and the spring and the lat last year, as he tried to come back in September, 
Um, but this guy is fragile and he's 34. And while he has value, I think you have to at least explore what you can get for him. Now, if you put him out there and don't get a whole lot back or you get a mid-level prospect, then maybe it's best to hold on to him and think about extending him. But I think you have to at least be ready to listen on him. The last question we have is one that I'm not qualified to answer, so we'll give it to you. Nick Molitoris with a Bruins question. He wrote a Bruins column the other day, so you're just spreading your wings, as you said. Uh, not socks and not sure if either of you even pay attention to the Bruins. I do not. Sean does. Any thoughts on the Taylor Hall trade to Chicago or how quickly things are getting difficult for them? I will actually say that the, maybe the great moment of Taylor Hall's legacy here in Boston was uh, standing in front of me at the U.S. Open and blocking John Rahm's tee shot when I was excited to see that on one last year on Saturday in Brookline. He was huge, and uh, the Blackhawks are getting a large player. That's my analysis. I think Don Sweeney had that very much at the top of right. his list for reasons to well, move Taylor Hall. The uh, the John Deere Classic is out in Illinois, so maybe he can enjoy that this week. Could be. Or next uh, week. Next week. I, I actually like the deal from the Bruins standpoint. Uh, it was clear that they have severe cap issues. Uh, they had less than $5 million to address them and a lot of questions to be answered. Uh, even before you get to the issue of is Patrice Bergeron coming back, it's clear this team needed some help. Um, I did advocate in a column that they also move Linus Olmark, who won the Vezina last night. He's 30 years old. He signed for reasonable money for two more years. You have Jeremy Swayman, who I think could capably move in and fill that number one goaltender spot. Give yourself more flexibility, the ability to do more in free agency or go out and acquire trades with some salary. Taylor Hall was the first move. I would argue for them to keep going with those sort of cap clearing uh, deals that give them additional flexibility. That's your hockey minute on the Fenway rundown. Uh, that's I, again, I can't provide anything. So we appreciate that from Sean Red Sox in action <clears throat> starting tonight against the Marlins three here. And then a weekend series in Toronto. Chris Smith will have you covered um, as he always does when he goes on the road, riding 18 times a day. 